Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're so fortunate to have Professor Joseph Hugh-Smith to give us a very timely presentation on the implications of the recent Chi Chinese Communist Party's fifth plenum. And that's an important meeting of what's the implication for China, for United States, and for the world. This is a, such a timely topic. Joe is authority on Chinese politics and the policy. He really doesn't need much introduction. He has written six books, and the seventh book is coming out very soon from Cambridge University Press next year. And Joe is a professor of international relations and the political science at Boston University's Pardee School. And uh, he has written, I would say he's really a prolific writer as well as a, a careful scholar. The first time I met Joe, we talked about Chinese elite politics. I was so impressed by the painstaking analysis he does of their speeches. Every word they use, every Chinese character they use, and how he changed from one period to another. He goes through that careful analysis to gain insights to interpret Chinese politics and policy. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn over the session to Joe. Um, I, I will jump in just quickly to say that if you wanna ask questions um, about, about Joe's presentation, um, you can do so in the Q&A tab um, at the bottom. Uh, please just put your name and affiliation if you want to be recognized. Um, if not, please use the anonymous question function. Um, thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Nick and uh, Bill. A very kind introduction. Uh, it's, I was gonna say, it's great to be back at the Fairbanks Center, but I'm, I'm actually in uh, lovely Cohasset down on the South Shore. And I'm hoping that sometime next fall, we'll be able to do these live and in person uh, back in the, uh, in the Fairbanks Center. Uh, this is a little bit of an awkward way of doing things, but uh, uh, at least this way, I cannot tell if you're yawning. So, uh, you know, whether you fall asleep or not, that's up to you, uh, greater independence. Uh, at any case, uh, when um, Ezra asked me to do this, I really wasn't sure whether there would be anything to talk about, uh, about the fifth plenum. I didn't know how much news we would have. We still don't have it all, um, but we do have some things that are perhaps uh, worth talking about. So I guess the way I have to do these, uh, uh, this presentation now is to share the screen and put up a, a PPT and uh, we'll do it that way. Um, so, There. 
Oops. Okay, uh, I trust that everybody can see this uh, screen. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, okay, I just like confirmation that it's working. Uh, at any case, uh, I thought I'd start out, of course, with the commander in chief reviewing the troops at the uh, 70th anniversary last year. Uh, I think that the way to approach the um, fifth plenum is to focus on sort of two issues, uh, the, the political and the economic. Uh, the political, because it struck me that there were just an, an enormous number of rumors uh, about what might or might not happen at the fifth plenum uh, that were going around on the internet. And then I'll talk about that for a little bit and then um, get into the economics. Uh, I realize that Bill Shaw is the real economist here, um, but I'll uh, at least raise some questions about the economy and what the plenum did uh, to the extent we know it. By the way, uh, it is worth reminding you that um, this presentation is not only timely, it's uh, before time. That is to say that the uh, 14th five-year plan will actually be revealed at the uh, National People's Congress meeting next March. Uh, what we have now is basically an outline of what that document will look like. Uh, so we are in some sense premature, but that allows me not to get deeply into the economics and show my ignorance of that field. At any case, um, let me get a little bit of a running start on the, uh, on the political questions. Uh, if you go back to the 18th Party Congress in 2012, and you look at the makeup of the leadership, uh, the Politburo, the Politburo Standing Committee, um, so forth, it really didn't seem that Xi Jinping was likely to be in a particularly strong position. Uh, it seemed like, uh, uh, well, that he'd have to kind of wait five years to uh, uh, build his own team and uh, maybe do something. So I think most of us felt in 2012 that the next five years was gonna be kind of conservative, a little uneventful, uh, and we just have to kind of wait and see how things evolved. And to the contrary, as you all know, Xi Jinping came out like a ball of fire. Um, he started the campaign against corruption uh, really uh, within uh, a couple of weeks after the, uh, after the 18th Party Congress. And uh, that hasn't led up uh, really to the present. Um, he, uh, there was a fear of so-called peaceful evolution, the idea that uh, society would become increasingly, uh, well, increasingly a degree of civil society that would increasingly challenge the uh, uh, position of the Chinese Communist Party. And of course that we had the example of the Soviet collapse and the color revolutions of Central Asia. And these were things that she uh, and his advisors reminded us of really uh, quite frequently. Uh, so uh, we know that the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union was very much on their minds. And I think that they uh, 
use that threat uh, very much to shake up the party through the campaign against corruption and other changes. There was also a lot of concern about party dysfunction, the idea that Beijing would say something and nobody would salute. Uh, you know, the local interests were uh, overtaking that, uh, overtaking central party interests. And I think Xi's focus on the party and trying to straighten that out has a lot to do with that. And as we know, there was a crackdown on ideology, the so-called document number nine, uh, which uh, railed against the, the seven things you're not talk, allowed to talk about, including Western constitutionalism and so forth. And so, you know, and then of course, he, he reformed the military, uh, you, know, you know, in a way that really has not been done in the uh, reform era. So rather than um, being the cautious uh, conservative leader that we thought we were getting, he's been very, very active. And so when you get to the 19th Party Congress in 2017, uh, you saw him with a really strong hand. Uh, you know, two members of the Politburo had never even served on the Central Committee, uh, not on the alternate, not as full members, and four members were elevated from alternate status. These are what we call helicopter promotions. Uh, two members of the Central Military Commission had never served on the Central Committee. Uh, this is a degree of personalism uh, of elevating your friends and allies that we really have not seen, at least in the post-Dung era and uh, per, perhaps not even in the Deng Xiaoping period. So, you know, I came away from the 19th Party Congress convinced that uh, she really had uh, control. And so what's been setting off these rumors uh, that there might be major political uh, changes at the fifth plenum? Well, I think there's a lot of things that have changed since uh, uh, three years ago. Uh, the decision in uh, 2018 to end term limits for the president uh, really set off a lot of talk in China. Uh, obviously there were a lot of people who disagreed with that. Uh, and, and so there were yeah, talk about rumors about some form of pushback. Obviously we had at the beginning of last year, uh, the uh, rather inept initial response to the coronavirus crisis uh, that uh, later of course uh, was a very draconian response to it. But at first, of course, it didn't look at all good. And I think there were still some people who are not satisfied with the response there. We had floods and apparent food shortages over the summer, uh, early fall. Uh, there were some uh, evidence of economic disputes between Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. Uh, there was that uh, a video clip that I'm sure many of you have seen with uh, Liu He introducing several people at a meeting and uh, he introduces Li Keqiang. Li Keqiang just starts to get up to bow to the group and Liu He keeps going on and announcing the next person. It seemed like a very strange and deliberate 
effort to humiliate the premier. Uh, so suggested some real tensions in the leadership. And then of course, there was the uh, Renzhi Chang and Tsai Xia cases. Renzhi Chang is a, uh, uh, a billionaire, I guess, a real estate developer. And uh, he criticized in extremely harsh terms, uh, the decision to end term limits, uh, uh, referring to Xi Jinping as a clown. Uh, and uh, of course, he was uh, earlier, but over the summer, early fall, I guess, uh, sentenced to 18 years in jail. It seemed like an inordinately heavy sentence, even for the crime of uh, uh, dissing the president of China. Tsai Xia is probably less well known. Uh, she was a retired professor at the Central Party School. And she uh, came to the United States on a, with a delegation and then stayed on in the United States where I believe she still is. I think she feels threatened uh, that if she should return to China, she would end up uh, like Renzhi Chang in, in jail. And it, the question is sort of why are these cases happening? And uh, I just have a, a, a guess on this. I don't have any inside information, but both uh, Renzhi Chang and uh, Tsai Xia can be counted as uh, part of that red aristocracy, the, the Hong or Dai, the, the second generation of, uh, 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 you know, of leading communists. Renzhi Chang's father was a, uh, I think, vice minister of commerce and Tsai Xiao's grandfather worked uh, in the intelligence area. And I think that what these cases suggest is that Xi Jinping is concerned that he's not popular to say the least uh, with at least a significant portion of this uh, second red generation. Uh, and uh, that if there were more people like Renzhi Chang that it would undermine the legitimacy both of himself and perhaps more broadly of the party. Uh, so uh, he's taking a very hard line on this. There were many uh, rumors that uh, Xi Jinping and his longtime friend, uh, Wang Qishan, uh, who um, were having some serious disagreements. Uh, there were a couple of people that were had close relations with Wang Qishan that were removed from office or taken in for investigation. And so that set off a lot of rumors. Uh, there were rumors that we would have um, political changes, possibly even um, enlarging the, the Politburo. Uh, there's Renzhi Chang and Tsai Xia um, and so forth. And um, that didn't happen. Uh, one of the curious things, and I'm not sure if it's related to the uh, plenum or not, uh, at the end of September, uh, the party, the Politburo, adopted something called the work regulations of the Central Committee. And it reads kind of like a supplement to the party charter. Uh, it's a very curious document, uh, especially in sort of the preamble of the document, it seems unusually personal 
uh, for a party regulation. Uh, it calls for the, um, to uphold the four consciousnesses. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the four consciousnesses, uh, one of them is the consciousness of the core, and consciousness about lining up, uh, that is falling into line uh, behind the core, uh, the kanchi isher. Uh, those are, of course, really um, personal because Xi Jinping is the core officially, and uh, he certainly introduced that you need this core consciousness, and he introduced the idea that you needed to uh, line up. Uh, kanchi, by the way, is a is a military term uh, for what we would translate as dress left, dress right. Uh, in other words, you know, keep that line with the person at the uh, top of the line. In, in, in this case, obviously, um, the core, which is Xi Jinping. And it also calls on people uh, to uphold the two upholds, uh, one of which is Xi Jinping is the core of the party. Uh, that is very unusual um, and uh, obviously also to uphold the authority of the party center. Uh, and uh, it, by the way, this, um, this set of regulations on the central committee does have the curious, uh, what, uh, proposition or whatever that all people, whether they're party members or not, uh, need to follow, consciously accept the leadership, I think is the wording, of the Central Committee. Uh, so it sounds like whether you're a party member or not, you are expected to follow the same party regulations as everybody else. And the idea that this is adopted uh, within a month before the um, fifth plenum uh, opened up, seems to suggest that Xi Jinping was dealing with at least perceived challenges to his authority uh, prior to the holding of this fifth plenum. Now I should balance that by saying that uh, the party has been combing through some 1000 regulations of intra-party regulations since about 2014. Um, and Xi Jinping seems to be quite determined to adopt a number of very strict uh, regulations written in paper, on paper, that will um, guide how the party should um, be governed. And so whether this is sort of a continuation of that work, sort of the final uh, brick in place, or whether it's uh, designed to come to fruition just before the fifth plenum. I'm uncertain about that. Haven't made up my mind on that. Uh, but in any case, it certainly seemed to uh, put down any challenges that might have been developing. Uh, so all those rumors that I referred to um, didn't happen. Uh, and so that gets us on to what did happen at the fifth plenum. Uh, first of all, it did not name a successor. 
I don't think I expected it to name a successor, but it seems like sort of the last possible time before we go into the uh, 20th Party Congress in 2022, um, you know, where uh, may, you know, there are still people who believe that Xi Jinping will retire after two terms as a leader of the Communist Party, um, but it's becoming less and less likely as time goes on. Uh, without a successor named at this point, uh, it looks like Xi Jinping will go on for a third term. Uh, by the way, he will be 69 in uh, 2022, which will then clearly break the uh, old rule of Qishan Basha that uh, uh, at, you will retire by the time you are 68 and he will apparently go on for a third and we'll see whether possibly a fourth term or whatever. Uh, there were no other personnel changes. Uh, personnel changes at plenums are fairly rare. There was an announcement that Wang Huning on the uh, Politburo Standing Committee was finally giving up his position as the head of the Policy Research Center. Uh, he's held that position for, I believe, 18 years. Uh, so maybe he was just getting tired of that. I don't know. Uh, he's been head of that despite having served for three years on the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, obviously, that's extremely unusual. Um, don't know if there's any further uh, implications to Wang Huning giving up that position. Uh, you know, that's one of the questions going forward. Uh, Xi Jinping did give a work report, which to this point has not been publicized. Uh, he did give an explanation of the drafting of the um, 14th five-year plan uh, in which he took credit, I guess that's the right expression, for overseeing the entire drafting process. Uh, so he owns this document. Uh, very interestingly, the document referred to uh, Xi Jinping as the helmsman. Uh, this is not the term that was used for Mao Zedong, but it's getting close. Um, uh, and it's a little bit surprising um, that they would use such a term for Xi Jinping. It may presage another title at the uh, 20th Party Congress in two years, we'll see. It adopted an outline for the 14th, 15 year, I'm sorry, the 14th five-year plan, which will be um, announced in full, as I say, in about six months. Uh, and it adopted an outline for economic development out to 2035. This 2035 number uh, was also used at the 19th Party Congress uh, three years ago. And it makes you wonder, um, why are they talking about 2035? Um, and it, this is pure speculation on my part, but in 2035, Xi Jinping will be 82 years of age. And I'm wondering whether he doesn't have in back of his mind or maybe the front of his mind, that he's intending to stay on at least until 2035. 
Um, in other words, basically lifelong tenure uh, for himself. Uh, in which case, by the way, we have absolutely no idea uh, of who will succeed him. Actually, even if he would step down after another five-year term, most of the people that are on the Politburo uh, would be overage at that time, assuming that they stick to those ages. So this whole idea of who will follow Xi Jinping is uh, perhaps even more of an open question than it uh, seemed to be a while ago. Uh, the uh, explanation of the 14th five-year plan was really quite interesting. Uh, uh, it did not set any economic targets. Uh, Xi Jinping did say that he hoped that uh, China's income per capita income would be doubled by 2035, uh, which would suggest that uh, per capita income would go from about 10,000 US dollars now to about 20,000 uh, per capita in uh, 2035, uh, which works out. I know Bill Shaw's an economist, so he'll correct my math, but I think that works out to about 4.85% per year. Um, I didn't actually do the math myself, but I've been checking out other people's math. Uh, so call it about 5% a year, uh, which on the one hand is a substantial slowing of the Chinese economy. The uh, 13th five-year plan called for about a 6.5% uh, growth rate. So if it's going down to 5%, uh, this is, by the way, to be expected as you get to larger economies, uh, you would expect the growth rate to slow and it is doing that. Whether that um, will cause uh, you know, more friction in the economy as there's less money slashing around, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, what I thought was really interesting about this uh, explanation uh, was that it's obviously influenced by the external environment. Uh, uh, the security environment uh, writ large. And that means I suppose primarily the United States and I guess primarily the uh, Trump administration. Uh, and I think that um, you have to conclude that China is worried or concerned uh, that US policy after the Trump administration is not gonna change all that much, that it will continue to um, make uh, life difficult for China. Um, and uh, it's not hard to, to read the, the arguments over Huawei and technology in general as being behind these, uh, uh, these concerns. Uh, the, the term on-trend security, um, is in this document over and over and over again. Uh, I would almost say that that is the primary concern about which, around which this uh, document revolves. Uh, the whole idea is to make China less susceptible to unexpected shocks from the external econ uh, economy. Well, not just economy, but uh, 
any political shocks that might develop. So there's a stress on developing the domestic economy. Uh, China has roughly 400 million so-called middle-class uh, citizens, and they are now front and center in, uh, in the uh, economic development plans. These people are supposed to spend more money, uh, pump up consumption, and lead the economy to a greater heights. Uh, that means that uh, you're going to need a lot of in indigenous innovation. Uh, maybe that's not quite the right word, but I am using the word uh, from the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era, when they first called for indigenous innovation. And of course, that was later changed, upgraded, if you will, to Made in China 2025. So I think we see a continuous um, stress on innovation, uh, but perhaps an even greater stress on um, indigenous innovation. Um, in, his, uh, in, in, in an article that Xi Jinping uh, wrote, I use that term loosely, I'm sure somebody else writes his speeches. He calls for um, killer innovation. Sha uh, Shoujian, uh, you know, the Sha uh, Shoujian was one of those terms that was, you know, it's uh, translated as killer's mace. And it was one of those terms that was uh, used in defense arguments, uh, uh, oh, a decade or so ago. Uh, and it was, you know, the idea that somehow China would come up with a weapon uh, that would give it a, a, a clear advantage over the United States or anybody else. Uh, I just found it interesting that they would use it in terms of uh, innovation. Um, at any case, uh, there is a stress on innovation and to take the lead in a lot of areas of technology. Uh, there is a stress on high quality development. There's, you know, uh, Xi Jinping is clearly tired of um, being the factory of the world. Uh, another interesting uh, choice of words, he refers to uh, China's economic model in the past as having followed this idea of putting both ends on the outside. That means you import a lot of uh, your, buy, uh, your uh, supply, uh, whether it's raw materials or whether it's uh, uh, parts and you assemble them in China and then export them. That was actually a concept that was developed by uh, Zhao Ziyang back in the 1980s. And it uh, allowed China to become much more open in terms of uh, export and import trade. Uh, and it allowed China not to slow its economic growth in the late 1980s and obviously into the 1990s and so on. And now Xi Jinping is saying, you know, we really have to curtail that uh, two ends on the outside and rely much more on our own internal demand. Uh, so this is, he's calling for a change in the model of China's 
economic growth. Uh, he also says in one of his speeches that, you know, this is going to cost us. Uh, you know, we do have to provide for security. And he's, he's talking about um, uh, security in terms of uh, relying, say, on American chips. That's where, uh, you know, the Huawei example seems to come to mind. Uh, we can't be vulnerable to the United States or other countries um, shutting off supplies of these vital um, materials. Uh, we need to have develop uh, our own chips. He doesn't say that explicitly, but that's what the in indigenous innovation is about. Um, you know, he says, this is going to cost us. We may not grow as fast as we want to, but we need to do this to be to provide for security. Um, you know, I kind of view this document uh, as I might um, the China's development of the of the military. Uh, if you look at China's military development, uh, particularly the emphasis on the navy, uh, China is worried about the sea lanes of control, the slocks. That's what naval development is all about. Uh, it doesn't want oil or other vital supplies to be blocked by the United States or anybody else. And so developing the Navy is a way of protecting the slocks. Uh, here you see sort of the analogous um, part uh, in the economy. We have to protect, if you will, the economic slocks, the areas where we're vulnerable, the pressure points that other countries uh, could use to uh, contain China, if you will. Uh, and he's trying to, so this, this is almost as much of a security document as it is an economic document. Uh, so that's quite interesting. It is in some sense, a Chinese version of decoupling. Uh, you know, China has been talking about the dual circulation, the, 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 the dual circulation. One area is the external world. The other is the domestic economy. And this document is clearly putting a lot more stress on the domestic economy. Uh, China's economic dependence on the outside world has dropped from about 50% uh, a couple of decades ago to uh, about 30% now. Uh, I would expect to see that continue to drop, not only because it is normal with a growing economy to have that dependence uh, drop, but also because of this type of thinking. Uh, so I don't know, of course, uh, where this is going to go. Uh, it does seem to set up the possibility of a lot of economic actors pushing back on these ideas. Uh, if imports are going to cost uh, a lot of more, or, or maybe I should put it the other way around, if relying on the domestic supplies is going to cost companies more money and is going to have lesser quality uh, I think you're going to see some companies pushing back uh, and saying, well, uh, we need some of these external supplies. 
So it would seem to set up some friction there, but we're just gonna have to see how that develops. Um, Xi Jinping did give a couple of speeches uh, that are carried by Cho Shir, the Central Committee's uh, theoretical journal, uh, one of which several major questions in the countries, uh, counties, uh, it's supposed to be countries, sorry, uh, middle and long-term economic and social development strategy. Uh, parallels very clearly uh, the same sorts of concerns that were reflected in this outline. So this is, a, again, really a very personal document. Xi Jinping, uh, is, this, is, this is Xi Jinping's approach to economic development. Uh, this article emphasizes security. It talks about uh, perfecting top-level design. Uh, again, a Xi Jinping idea. Um, it's a more statist document, less market-oriented. Um, it's supposed to study more government market relations, which, you know, I'm not sure Xi Jinping would um, pass the uh, economics department's demand, uh, their exams. When he talks about government market relations, he's not talking about um, strengthening the market. Uh, he's trying to figure out how to strengthen the government without ruining the economy. Um, good luck with that. Uh, We'll see how that develops. The other speech I thought was really interesting uh, because he is talking about Marxism, uh, Marxist political economy. And he says, Marxism is not passe. Um, and then he runs through as if he were writing in the 1930s, something about how capitalism is facing a variety of crises. Uh, at any case, um, He's trying to develop a party controlled market economy. Uh, I don't know if that can work. I guess I repeated myself down here uh, for some reason. Uh, at any case, uh, that's the direction that he's setting right now. Uh, we'll see where it goes. The other point that I wanna finish with is I think that to a large extent, uh, Xi Jinping has been reversing most everything that Deng Xiaoping is identified with. Uh, Deng Xiaoping was identified with breaking up over concentration of power, uh, the centralization and, and of course the economic strategy of the eighties and into the nineties was really a decentralization. Uh, now we're seeing centralization. Uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping was really quite against extending the terms of uh, party leaders. Uh, when uh, in 1992, when Jiang Zemin got his first full term uh, of power, uh, Deng Xiaoping named Hu Jintao as his successor. He said, okay, Jiang, you can have these 10 years, but Hu Jintao is uh, going to succeed you in 10 years. And as much as I think Jiang Zemin wanted to override that decision, it was authoritative and he could not do that. Um, I think that what she is doing, if, if I'm right that he will go for a third term, he's reversing that. Uh, uh, you know, 
Deng Xiaoping wanted power to circulate within the party and Xi Jinping does not seem to want to. Uh, there is a greater personalization of power. Um, I don't think I want to call it a personality cult, but uh, you know, if you would compare the pa front page of People's Daily today with the People's Daily in the 1980s, the contrast is palpable. Uh, the, uh, today you look at the paper and it's Xi Jinping is on the front page almost every single day. Uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, was kept a low profile. Uh, he was clearly the paramount leader as he's always called in the Western press, but uh, he, he himself kept a low profile. There was no cult of Deng Xiaoping. You have at least a quasi cult of Xi Jinping. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in China because uh, of a certain virus, but last time I was there, I did go to the uh, History Museum of the Revolution and Xi Jinping's picture was everywhere. Um, it was quite, uh, quite a show. And uh, so I think there's no mistaking the, the building up of this uh, uh, personality driven um, administration. Uh, and of course, uh, Deng Xiaoping emphasized the need to separate party and state. And that has been completely reversed uh, under Xi Jinping, who says the party leads in everything. So those are my thoughts about the uh, fifth plenum and uh, the political situation in China in general at this time. And I will stop there and open it up for questions. Um, Bill, you wanna ask the first question? Yes, Joe, thank you very much. Uh, you really gave us uh, a context to look at the fifth, fifth plenum. You look at start with 2012 and what happened and move forward to now. And uh, really, your insightful analysis and interpretation uh, really offer us a very uh, much uh, clear view of the, what, what just took place and what the possible uh, decisions. Uh, my question is this, uh, which you touch upon, uh, which is based on what your talk uh, you talk about the rumors, there may be differences within the Communist Party. And by that did not seem to emerge, but something happened on September 28th. They have to issue that very clear directive, you know, Xi Jinping is the center, center and also you need to obey. So that may indicate really there is different powerful factions and struggling going on. Uh, with your insights, can you comment on what are the different factions? Do they come from different ideological perspective or do they come from different 
uh, view about how the economy should be developed because China depends so much on what's called performance legitimacy to right. gain the public's support. Will you please comment on that? Um, always nice of you to ask a simple question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I'm judging from the Renzhi Chang and Tsai Xia cases that there are a lot of people in uh, influential positions who really don't like the concentration of power in uh, Xi Jinping and a select group of people around him. Uh, so I think that you have, um, you know, it's, there's nothing that I could say this person or that person is opposed to him, but I, I do suspect that there is a fair amount of, we don't want to go back to, you know, a, a personal dictatorship. Uh, we had that with Mao, been there, done that, uh, and Xi Jinping is, seems to be grasping for precisely that sort of power. Uh, I, you know, as I say, I really don't see at this point, uh, maybe I'll uh, see it in a little while, but uh, at this point, it just seems like he will go on for at least a third term. And, uh, I, you know, I think that it's quite possible that he will go on uh, even longer than that, because it, there's, if you look at the last 40 years, there's always been some contending forces to balance people off so that nobody could concentrate power. She, one distinguishing feature of the Xi administration is that he can, seems to be controlling basically everything. Uh, you know, the elders, uh, the retired people, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, et cetera, you know, their followers have been largely cut off. Uh, so they don't have uh, the influence that um, elders in previous administrations had. Um, so politically, <coughs> I think that, uh, you know, he would face a generalized thing, um, generalized opposition. But I, you know, obviously, judging by those regulations, he's pushing back very hard uh, on the economy performance legitimacy. Uh, that's an interesting question because, well, I'm sure you know uh, Nick Lardy's book, The State Strikes Back. Uh, and uh, his, his thesis in that uh, was that the slowdown, the economic slowdown that China has been suffering uh, is due to the lack of reform. And uh, I suspect if, if Nick thinks that, I'm sure there are a lot of economists in China who think the same thing. Uh, and so it's kind of a question of how much can you slow down the economy uh, before people say, wait a minute, boss, we got to go a different direction. Uh, you know, you know, on the other hand, you know, I, I you know, you've studied the Chinese economy a lot. Uh, the, um, I don't think China has ever really trusted markets. And this document really says, I don't trust markets even more loudly than past documents. So, um, you know, it's gonna be very interesting because if you hit other um, 
economic road bumps, uh, speed bumps, it's going to be, it will open up some very severe debates in China. Uh, and I think the longer that Xi Jinping stays in power, the bigger those debates are going to be. Thank you. I'm going to let Nick take over to uh, give the questions that come from the audience. Thank you. Um, so for those of you who are in the audience and thinking about asking a question, please just put it in the Q&A tab. We'll try to get through as many as we can. Um, but to start us off, we have Paul here from the Center for National Interest. Um, and he's got a kind of a two-part question here. What, <laughs> what would you posit as Xi's criteria for determining that his job is completed and he can retire? What does he think he can and must achieve before he steps aside? And the second part of that is, do you foresee a scenario or a catalyst that could lead to successful pressure within leadership for him to step aside? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. The, um, the whole party is set up with um, the idea of struggle at the center, right? So even something like uh, a five-year plan you have to struggle to achieve it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that China would love to uh, reunify the country. Um, uh, you know, taking Taiwan. I don't think that that's going to happen at any time soon. Uh, and so, um, and if you, gee, if if somehow it would work out that Taiwan would. Uh, agree, um, wow, he'd be so successful that there'd be no need to retire. Uh, you know, it goes both ways, right? You've got to stay in power to because you continue the struggle. And if you're successful, why would you change leaders? I'm so good. Uh, I, you know, I know that uh, a large part of people watching China assume that she is going to retire. Uh, he might. Uh, but I don't think that that should be our working assumption. Uh, now, is there a group within the party that might force him, pressure him to step aside? Uh, you know, often we don't see these things until they finally become evident. Uh, you know, you do have a lot of people that originally came up through the Jiang Zemin network who are in and around the political system. Uh, you, um, you have a lot of people who were pushed out uh, in the military, for instance, uh, who I think are probably unhappy with his shakeup. Um, there are certainly a lot of people in the Communist Youth League, which was really decimated by Xi Jinping. Uh, so I can see a lot of groups that would like to push back. I'm not sure that they can coalesce either within themselves or among themselves in a way that could really pressure Xi Jinping uh, to step down. Uh, I think that would require um, uh, probably a, a major crisis of some sort. Uh, that she was not up to. And uh, it seems that the coronavirus was not enough of a crisis. Um, so 
I don't know the answer, Paul. Um, and kind of on the same topic, we have a question here from Tim Cheek, um, who says, on the question of how powerful or stable Xi Jinping's administration might be, is it useful to compare the status of Zhang Chunqiao's Chao and leftist leaders of the CCP in 1975? Well, Tim, how much control of the military did uh, <laughs> he have? Uh, <laughs> that was, a, that was a, the weakness of the Gang of Four was always that they had control of the propaganda apparatus, but not a lot else. And, uh, you know, I'm not a military expert, but, you know, I think that Xi Jinping's reform of the military is not only for operational purposes, but for power purposes. Uh, you know, the, um, the old military leadership under Xu Taiho. Xu Taiho in his position as head of the general political uh, department and then as vice uh, chair of the military commission had vetted the promotions of 83 people promoted to general. Xi Jinping has gotten rid, I haven't gone through systematically all 83, but it's pretty clear he has cleared out that Xu Taiho Guobusheng group of leaders and turned to a different group of military leaders. And so um, Zhang Chunqiao just didn't have the influence in the military that Xi Jinping has. So I think Xi Jinping is in a much better position. Um, one, here's a question from one of our visiting scholars at the Fairbanks Center, John Jun Gao. Um, he says the RCEP was just signed days ago including 15 countries. I was wondering what you might, might be your take on this politically and economically. Also, how do you see US trade policy next? Uh, seems a new round of trade negotiation will, de will develop not far from now. Yeah, uh, I haven't read too many analyses of the RCEP uh, thing. It's obviously, I mean, politically, it's obviously a, a, a triumph. Uh, economically, I don't know that it does a whole lot for China. Um, so sort of a symbolic uh, anti-TPP, uh, PTT, uh, uh, that's what it is. I, I, I stutter over those uh, um, initials, acronyms. Uh, you know, I, I, at any case, I don't see a whole lot of oomph behind the RCEP. Uh, other than the symbolism of it. Um, here's a question from Will Zhao. Um, he's a second year SAIS student. Um, how might the continuing personalization and partitization of uh, politics affect the efficacy and processes of goal setting and implementation of China's domestic policies, more specifically with regards to its carbon neutral by 2060 goals. Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't think we were going to uh, the carbonization question. Uh, uh, in any case, I think that one of the really interesting questions that I will start uh, looking into relatively soon is what does this centralization mean for the party? Uh, and I think it has a lot of implications. Uh, some of you may be familiar with an article 
uh, by Lilian Zhang in um, China International, I believe it is, in where he talks about the number of cadres who left their positions, resigned after the anti-corruption campaign started. People that basically said, hey, look, if I can't make a decent living as a cadre, I don't want to work this hard. Uh, I don't want to make myself vulnerable to mistakes. I'd rather go and jump into the sea of uh, business and make a good living. Uh, and uh, so that, that recruitment and retention of cadres is I think one of the big questions um, facing the party in the future. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who um, take the difficult test to become a Gongwu Yan, a, a public servant. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're there for four or five years, they luck around and their classmates are all making a lot more money than they are. And they say, hmm, I think I'll join my classmates and, uh, and do that instead of government. Um, and then there are the people who stay and don't work. Uh, you know, it's become a environment where people are afraid of taking the initiative or are not given the authority to take the initiative. If somebody above you is deciding how to solve your local problems, you say, this isn't much fun. I'm not allowed to do anything. And I can't make any, any money at it. I'll, maybe I'll leave, but maybe I'll just stay in this chair, you know, collect my health benefits and whatever. Uh, but I think you're maybe losing some of the vitality of the party that has made it successful in the early reform period. Here's a question from Ifan Zhang, um, a recent graduate from BU and John's, John Hopkins. Um, a quick question on cross-strait relations. Uh, the previous five-year plan emphasized a win-win approach and deepening economic ties with regard to Taiwan. What are the implications this time and then also for Hong Kong? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that um, I, I don't think that there's any prospect for a peaceful reunification uh, across the Straits, um, which leaves you with either continued status quo or something much less pleasant to emphasize. Uh, the, the Hong Kong situation from Taiwan's perspective means that China can no longer make a credible commitment. You know, if it, if they, it doesn't matter what they sign. Uh, it's hard for Taiwan to take them seriously. Uh, if you can go in and tear up uh, the uh, one country, two systems in Hong Kong, well, I mean, one country, two systems never had any market in Taiwan. Now you have to be in the uh, sub-zero category on that. Uh, so I really don't think, uh, and as far as the win-win stuff, um, you know, I don't think that there's any uh, any chance that that will lead to people in Taiwan saying, gee, I'd like to unify, reunify the country. Uh, you know, what we see is a continued military intimidation. Um, this is not winning 
the hearts and minds of the people of Taiwan. Um, you know, I, I think it's, unfortunately, I think all the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. Uh, on the other hand, I am modestly optimistic that China will not do something, uh, an unprovoked military attack, just because the implications of that are so enormous. Uh, and I think China fully understands that. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe they can pressure Taiwan other ways, but not, I, I personally, I would vote for a, a continuation of the status quo. Xi Jinping doesn't seem to like that, but I think ultimately that's his best bet. I hope I'm right on that. Um, Sebastian Veig says, uh, what oh. to make of your apparent, of the apparent attacks on private entrepreneurs um, in China? Uh, Sun Dawu sentenced to prison, Jack Ma's IPO stopped, et cetera. And Xi Jinping's unexpected recent visit to the um, Zhang Jian Museum in Nantong and speech on social entrepreneurship. Yeah, um, I, I think it means that uh, China is not going to adopt Milton Friedman economics anytime soon. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, it's, uh, I think pretty clear that uh, this is part of what we mean by studying the relationships between government and private economy, the market, uh, you know, government is clearly going to be the boss. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this, the, I think that the hope that many people had that China's economy would grow and well, like Taiwan, uh, that they would, it's not, uh, if I can use Barry Naughton's title, outgrow the, the, what the, uh, outgrow the plan, it's outgrowing the authoritarian system. Uh, and she is quite determined that that's not going to happen, at least under his watch. Uh, you know, he, he just, uh, he's not market oriented. He's all politics all the time. Um, I guess somewhat related to that, uh, Flavian Bernega says, do you believe Lee Kachang is, a perce is perceived as a nuisance and will be eventually swept aside? Uh, I think that there's a very good chance that he will um, be out of the uh, Politburo at the next party Congress. Um, you know, this was, you know, this was very strange after the, uh, I guess it was after the 18th party Congress, right? Uh, uh, Xi Jinping set up this um, commission on deepening the reform, right? Uh, so Li Keqiang, is supposed to come up with a plan that he submits to this committee, which is headed by Xi Jinping. And the committee then takes it to the Politburo or the Politburo Standing Committee, which is headed by Xi Jinping. Uh, so Li Keqiang is what, about three levels down. Uh, you've always had a strong, competent premier in China, Zhou Enlai, Zhu Rongji, these sorts of people. Uh, and now uh, Li Keqiang, just doesn't seem to have much influence, uh, at least with Xi. And so I think that, well, it would have been two terms as premier. So um, he should step down uh, at the 20th Party Congress. 
And if she keeps going on, um, you know, you probably will find somebody um, that she personally likes who moves into that position. Um, here's a question from Lee Lee, who I think is Lee Lee, one of our visiting scholars. Um, huh. What is your view about how, what, how the future five to 10 years will look for China, um, given this increase of centralization um, that she is, is leaning towards uh, and the economic growth slowing down? Uh, as well as more Chinese citizens getting educated and becoming more interested in politics? Uh, you know, one of the things that I always love about my Chinese students and those that I meet at the Fairbanks Center or else, you, you see these enormously bright, talented young people and you say, boy, if China would only let these people do their thing, uh, China really has hope in, in many different dimensions. Um, you know, uh, in any case, uh, going back to sort of the first, you know, I kind of view China right now as um, making big bets on innovation. And, you know, China, at least at the central level, has a lot of money it can spend on supporting innovation. And I, I remember some years ago, they started spending money on solar panels. Didn't work. So they spent more. Didn't work. Spent more. Didn't work. Spent a lot more. Dominated the world market. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I would guess that fields like artificial intelligence, uh, telecommunications, uh, these sorts of areas, uh, China seems determined to spend a lot of money. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, they might win. You, you know, you, if you're in Vegas, all you need to do is hit one of your 10 bets, hit it big, and you can go home with a nice payroll, uh, uh, nice winnings. Uh, I do think that what is happening in telecom is that we're going to have two different worlds. And that's going to be really interesting. You're going to have a Sinocentric world and a what Anglo-American world. And you know, I don't know if those can work well together or coexist for a long time, but that seems to be the direction that we're headed right now. So there is some decoupling going on. Um, China will sell Huawei to Asia and um, you know, other mar markets and around the world and the US and Europe will try to have their non Huawei phones circulating in other parts of the world. So I think we're gonna have a lot of friction, uh, technological contest. You know, one of the things that has always amazed me about uh, policy under the current administration uh, is you have trade conflicts, which to refer, go back to that question, uh, I suspect that that will be wound down, at least in part, under a Biden administration. But you haven't said, look, this is a Sputnik moment. China's technology, at least in some areas, is catching up. We need to land a man on the moon. Uh, you know, we need to spend a lot more money on developing technology. Uh, that should be the challenge of the new administration, I think. Um, not trying to worry about trade deficits. 
I don't know if that's a full enough answer. Um, here's one from Anonymous. So I don't know who asked this. Uh, and I'm, it says, if any natural misfortunes occurred to the core, what do you see uh, in terms of how the CCP leaders would act slash react? And I'm not sure if this is asking about natural disasters or just general big, big, bad things. So I'll let you, you take know, that how you will. <laughs> you know, one of the... Uh interesting things is I don't think that China has ever developed a mechanism for really addressing those sorts of issues. Uh, you know, I, you, some of us are old enough to remember right after Tiananmen, there was a rumor started uh, that uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping had been shot or, or no, that Li Peng had been shot. Uh, but turn it around and say, what if Deng Xiaoping had had a heart attack in June or July, 1989, uh, China would have been in a mess. Uh, no clear mechanism for how you would have picked out a, a new leader. Or, you know, when um, Xi Jinping disappeared for two weeks before the 18th Party Congress, uh, uh, what if, you know, one of the many, many rumors was that uh, somebody had taken a shot at him, uh, an assassination attempt. Um, you know, what if, you know, it doesn't have to be anything that dramatic. He could have just had a heart attack uh, and died, uh, you know, a few weeks before the Congress is supposed to meet. What do you do? Uh, uh, you know, do you put off the Congress for some period of time and go back to Beidai? Um, you know, when uh, after Tiananmen, the uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping talked to Chun Yun and Li Xiannian about who should lead China. Uh, three people decided who should lead China. Uh, there was no, you know, central committee meeting. wasn't even a Politburo meeting to discuss this. It was three elders, um, none of whom held held an official. No, no, I, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping at the time was still head of the military commission, uh, but none of them were uh, on the central committee, and yet they all did, they got together, or their secretaries got together, and said, "No, oh, we like Jiang Zemin." Uh, so there's, I think, the mechanism would always change uh, about how the party would deal with this, and there is no clear mechanism of how you would. Uh, deal with an emergency situation. Uh, I think it would count very much on the distribution of power at the time. Do you have another uh, last question or shall we close the meeting next? Um, I think we probably have time for one more question if, if right. you like. Would okay, you, one I, more. Do you have I'll one to ask for you or one me to ask? I, I'm saving my best answer for last. <laughs> um, okay, so this this next one is is uh, again from an anonymous uh, viewer. Uh, they say, "Is the BRI still Xi's signature policy, or is it already so ingrained in the state party agenda that it will remain an overarching initiative beyond Xi?" I think I would guess the latter. Um, uh, well, in in many ways, um, BRI was. Um, started before BRI, right? Many of the projects included in the BRI were already happening. And 
uh, you know, they'll say, well, we started BRI years ago before it was announced. And those sorts of projects are gonna continue on uh, whether she is there or not. Uh, I don't study uh, BRI closely enough to know whether these things are really being integrated into a coherent policy or whether there's still a collection of different initiatives uh, from different areas. Um, uh, you know, I, in other words, I'm not sure if it's truly a strategy or whether it's uh, a number of projects. Uh, I do think that some of the energy stuff that's around BRI, that strikes me as a strategy, but it strikes me as something that will stay whether she is there or not. Well, thank you, Joe. Really, uh, you answer a wide range of questions. Well, it shows the richness of your knowledge. And besides the elite politics, you really cover the whole field. Thank <laughs> you very much. We really benefit from your uh, wisdom and knowledge and also insight. Well, thank you very much, Bill. You're very kind. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, we should uh, let you take a little rest, and but we would love to have you back again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Bye. Bye.